0: Peace be upon you. So, there's this famous philosopher by the name of Peter Singer, and he has this thought experiment. He says Imagine you're wearing some fancy clothes. You got a $1,000 suit on, you got some fancy shoes, and you're walking and you pass by a well and you realize that there's a child drowning in this well. Are you obligated to go and save this child, knowing full well that doing so will ruin your clothes? Now, any sensible person would say, yeah, absolutely, there's a child drowning. The life of that child is way more than the money anyone spent on their clothes. But then he extrapolates this further. He says, well, what if that child isn't in your vicinity? What if it's a child in some developing country somewhere? Are you obligated to give $1,000 if you could in order to save that child? Now, this is a very profound thought experiment. And there's some truth in this, but I want to deconstruct this thought experiment to see if it holds up. Because in this thought experiment, we're dealing with absolutes, the the life of a child. But life is not so cut and dry. And to start off to showing the the, uh, gaps in this thought experiment, I want to start off by what God says in regards to charity. So God tells us that it is our duty, it's our obligation to be charitable that the only way we're going to be able to achieve righteousness is by giving to charity. In Surah 3, verse 92, it says, "'You cannot attain righteousness "'until you give to charity from the possessions you love. "'Whatever you give to charity, God is fully aware thereof.'" So God is advocating, saying, look, if you wanna be righteous, it's our obligation to give to charity. And it tells us that, you know, one option is you can go to the extreme. You say, look, you know, how much charity should I give? Someone could say, look, give everything. Because any charity you give is for your own good. But God actually sets limitations to this. In Surah 2, verse 195, it reads, You shall spend in the cause of God. Do not throw yourselves with your own hands into destruction. You shall be charitable. God loves the charitable. God is saying don't take all your possessions and give it away. That there's a certain amount that you're supposed to give away. And a certain amount you're supposed to retain for yourself, for your family and this concept is further reinforced in surah 17 verse 26 and 27 where it reads you shall give the due alms to the relatives the needy the poor the traveling alien but do not be excessive extravagant the extravagant are brethren of the devils and the devil is unappreciative of his lord so god is saying don't be extravagant don't give it all away you know in essence it's a form of showing off that there's a certain amount we're supposed to give. And what is that? In Surah 2, verse 2, 19, it says, they ask you about what to give to charity, say, the excess. God thus clarifies the revelations for you that you may reflect. So God is saying, whatever is excess, your surplus, whatever it is that you don't need, give from that. You know, Maintain what you need for yourself, but there's an excess that God has provided us that we are supposed to use for charity. And a, a rule of thumb I like to use is I like to give enough where I feel slightly uncomfortable where that's where I believe the growth occurs. So now that we've set the foundation that, yeah, absolutely, we're supposed to give to charity, we're supposed to help others, we have to give from the possessions we love in order to be able to obtain righteousness, God also sets guidelines as far as who we are supposed to give in what order. So in Surah 2, verse 215, it says, They ask you about giving, say, The charity you give shall go to the parents, the relatives, the orphans, the poor, and the traveling alien. Any good you do, God is fully aware thereof. So God is emphasizing that it's our responsibility that we give in this particular order. That if we have charity to give and we have to decide between do I give it to a stranger or do I give it to my parents, that my parents take precedent over uh, a stranger. And similarly, my parents take precedent over relatives. And relatives take precedent over uh, orphans and those over poor and then the traveling alien. And there's a reason for this that we give precedence to certain individuals when it comes to charity and helping. And a lot of people, when you ask, you say, you know, why should you give within an inner circle? They think that this is an evolutionary reason or biological reason or a genetic reason. It's none of the sort. This is a purely logical reason. And I'm gonna get into that, but first I wanna emphasize some of these verses. So in Surah 33, verse six, it says, the prophet is closer to the believers than they are to each other, and his wives are like mothers to them. The relatives ought to take care of one another in accordance with God's scripture. Thus, the believer shall take care of their relatives who immigrate to them, provided they have taken care of their own families first. These are God's commandments of this scripture. So God is emphasizing that we have a responsibility among taking care of our relatives. Uh, But we have a precedent where we have to take care of our families first. So there's an order here. Similarly, in Surah 42, verse 31, it says, I do not ask you for any wage I do ask each of you to take care of your own relatives. So you see this theme in the Quran, that we have certain responsibilities, that the closer we are in relation with someone, in proximity with someone, the more we are uh, commanded to help that person, to give from our, uh, our provisions to that person. So what is the meaning behind this? Why is this? It's because a very simple reason. If you take two children, one is my child, one is a stranger. What is the likeliness that I have a better grasp of what my child needs versus some other child needs? Obviously, I'm going to know better as far as what is it that my child needs than some other random child. Or what about my family versus another family? I'm going to have a better sense of what my family needs versus what another family needs. Or my community and someone else's community. Or my state and someone else's state. Or my country and someone else's country. Obviously, the closer I am to the individuals I'm trying to help, the better I'm able to address their problems. Now, what happens is you take Peter Singer's uh, thought experiment and he's dealing with a life. And yeah, you can say two lives, they're, they're equal because every life should be uh, cherished. But that's not typically what charity is for. Charity is not strictly in the sense of saving someone's life. Charity is typically for the betterment of another individual. Now, what's the likeliness that I know what's best for another individual when I'm physically and emotionally further away from them? What is the probability that I'm going to have the right uh, uh, solution for their ailments, for their problem? And you realize the further away we are from a problem, the more disconnected we are, the more likely it is that we are going to diagnose it and provide the wrong remedy. And oftentimes we actually end up hurting the situation rather than benefiting it. And I want to show you some examples of this. Years ago, there was something that was called the Millennium Challenge. This was a group of highly ranked economists, Nobel laureates, that they got together. And the objective was to see, could they pick select villages within Africa and increase the economic prosperity of these villages? Now, you would think these are the most capable individuals. These are highly, uh, you know, they, they have all the, the, the credentials behind them, that they should be able to solve this problem. It should be easy. But there was a fundamental mistake in the way that they approached this problem. None of them lived in Africa. None of them lived in this village that they were trying to help. None of them had a direct connection with the end outcome of the decisions they were making for these people. And because of that, after six years, there's a a book by Nina Monk uh, that uh, detailed this. This is The Idealist Jeffrey Sachs and the Quest to End Poverty. And she documents how in six years, this entire millennium challenge was an utter disaster and you think, how could this possibly be? I'll break down some of the, the, the high-level stuff. So they allocated that these communities, these villages, should start farming, specifically farming corn, because they economically it was very uh, easy to uh, produce corn. You can get a lot of calories per bushel. So they said this, from the top-down perspective, made sense. It made the most sense for these villages to grow corn. The challenge was... These people never grew corn before, so they had to be educated, they had to be taught how to uh, to grow corn, how to harvest it, all that stuff. That's fine. Then the challenge became, well, who do you produce this corn for, right? These individuals, they gave up their livelihood to go and you know uh, participate in this challenge, and they had no one to sell this product to. So they said, okay, well, you got to go and find, uh, you know, a market to sell this. Well, there was no infrastructure, there was no roads, there was no cars to kind of bring the goods to. So they constantly were running into problems. Then eventually, they get the product to the market to other uh, villages. And the reality was, no one wanted corn. They considered it peasant food. So all of a sudden, you have individuals they've spent, you know, so much of their life, so much of their livelihood, going down this path. But because the individuals in their offices, in academia, were never on the ground floor understanding the, the ramifications of their decisions, the thing was an utter disaster. Uh, individuals in the village, they're documenting, they're rioting, they're upset. They said that you destroyed our livelihood and they, with reason. And this is what happens. The further we're disjoint from the problem we're trying to solve, the more likely it is we're going to institute the wrong solutions. That's why God is constantly emphasizing to give in the order of the individuals that you have the most knowledge about, the individuals that you're the closely connected, the most closest connection you have with. You know, obviously I have a better grasp of what my parents want than what some, you know, random neighbor wants, because these are individuals that I understand where they're coming from, what their challenges are. There's another example. This was, uh, they wanted to institute uh, pumps in uh, uh, villages that didn't have water. And right now, you know, the villages, they had these hand pumps that adults, predominantly uh, the women of the village, would have to constantly work hard to pump to get water. And someone had this bright idea. They said, you know what, what if we built a playground, specifically a merry-go-round, that when the kids play on the merry-go-round, it automatically pumps the water. And it sounds like a great idea. You know this group that developed this, they got prizes and accolades, and you know, uh, all the uh, major publications were covering it. This is amazing, you're going to help these people so much. But again, none of these people lived in these villages. So, what happens? They go and they spend millions of dollars, they, they install these merry go rounds, and the kids play with it for a couple hours, then they get bored. But the individuals, the, 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 the family, still needed water. So, rather than having a very efficient hand pump, uh, despite the work. You have grown adults pushing a merry-go-round in order to get a fraction of the water out of it. And they were pissed off. They were upset. And again, this has to do because they, the individuals who are instituting the solutions were disjoined from the outcome. And they were giving the wrong diagnosis, the wrong remedies to solve their supposed problems. Uh, we have another example with Tom's Shoes. So this was a, a shoe company still around. They said for each shoe that you buy, they donate a shoe to a developing country. And this sounds very noble, it sounds great. Free shoes for people who need it. But what happens to the individuals in those markets whose business was importing shoes or repairing shoes? They get decimated. They're out of business. How do you compete against an American company who has billions of dollars in funding and is giving the product out for free? And these are the unintended consequences that take place. I believe Tom's Shoes has corrected this. But again, it's easy for us thousands of miles away to diagnose and remedy a problem, but chances are we'll probably completely uh, uh, cause a destructive force to the very people we're trying to help. And if you're thinking that, oh, this is just has to do with Africa, I wanna give another example. So in 1912, uh, the Titanic hit the iceberg in the Atlantic Ocean and uh, it you know obviously sank and 1,500 people died. So naturally the legislator said, you know what? We need to have legislation that every single vessel has enough lifeboats in order that if, if it uh, uh, runs into an iceberg or it uh, topples over, that the lifeboats can save the individuals. So three years later in 1915, there's a ferry in Chicago, the SS Eastland, and uh, they had to retrofit this boat in order to accommodate enough lifeboats for all the potential uh, crew and passengers. Well, it ends up that the boat wasn't really designed for this. And because of that, it toppled over, killing 844 passengers and crew. Now, these individuals, they had the right intention with the legislation, but because they weren't the operators of every single vessel, in essence, you have these unintended consequences where they're thinking they're helping people, but because they're, again, disconnected from the individuals who have to actually implement these solutions, they run into unintended consequences. Um, Economics, uh, the uh, podcast just did a two part series about ban the box. This is an initiative where they said, you know, um, some people are being discriminated against because they have a criminal history, uh, when they're filing for employment, because an employer is going to ask, have you ever, you know, served time in jail? Uh, do you have any felonies? And because of that, they were automatically disqualified from the application process. Now they said they thought again, their heart came in the right, uh, came from the right place. They thought if they banned this. Uh, ability for an employer to ask these questions, that it's going to uh, positively impact the 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 population that's coming with a criminal background. And what ended up happening was that since employers couldn't ask point blank, you know, do you have a criminal history? Did you spend time in jail? The employers started making assumptions. They assumed that if they were uh, black or uh, Hispanic, that they probably had a criminal history and they just didn't hire them point blank. And because of that, they saw a drop in employment among that demographic. Now, again, this came from good intentioned people, many of these individuals of those ethnic backgrounds. But what they didn't realize was that they were implementing solutions that actually hurt their very cause. There's a quote from Groucho Marx. It says, politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly and applying the wrong remedies. And more often than not, this is what politicians inevitably end up doing. And it's not out of ill intent. It's just this is the nature of the system. The further we are disconnected from the people we're trying to serve, the more likely it is that we're gonna institute the wrong regulations, the wrong policies. So the question is, how do we resolve this? What is the Quranic answer to this? Because this actually goes down to what is the Quranic political system? What political system is the closest to what the Quran advocates? And from my understanding of the Quran, from my research into uh, politics, economics, just studying, the economic policy, the political system that is the most aligned with the Quran is localism. And you probably never heard of localism. And I'll try to break it down for you. Localism means that the closer you are to the problem, the more say you have over how to resolve that problem. Meaning that you don't rely on the federal government to solve the issues in a community. That the community has the resources necessary to dictate what's the best solution for them. So how does this play out? And I'll show you. With my family, I'm a communist, right? We share everything. We live under one household. Uh, you know, Our income is all uh, shared among uh, all the members of my family. But in my community, I'm definitely not a communist. I'm a socialist. I want to have a uh, public schools, libraries, uh, fire department, police department, these social goods that we all benefit from, that me and my neighbors and stuff, we realize that in order to have a good, strong community, we need these foundational pieces. So we all unanimously decide to chip in in order to have this. And if you go up one level above that, you go to the city and the county, I'm a Democrat. I want roads, I want bridges, I want these things that I I know are necessary in order for my city and my county uh, to be prosperous. And you realize each one of these steps as we're moving up, what's happening is we're basically reducing the scope of influence such that individuals who are closer to the problem have more sway. So we can actually get unanimous consensus on how things are achieved. So above that, above city and county, you go up to the state level. I'm a Republican. Because I want to have fiscal, strong fiscal policy. I don't want the government wasting money uh, on frivolous things. But at the same time, I realize that we need to have regulation. We need to have uh, things that allow for a prosperous society, things that promote business, free trade, these aspects. And then you go to the federal level. I'm a libertarian. You know, The government from the federal should just make sure that the individuals have the freedom of choice. Uh, freedom to uh, speech, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, these things that allow an individual to have uh, autonomy is what the federal government should be instituting. Now what ends up happening is if you're dictating from the top down how to run a community or a city or a state, it utterly fails. The individuals who are closer to the problem should be the ones who have the most sway over that problem and not the other way around. And what's fascinating is, you know, some people, they want to have socialism as the the federal government. What they don't realize is a socialist federalist government does not allow autonomy down below because you cannot have a free market system. You cannot have a capitalistic system in a socialist uh, uh, government. It doesn't compute. So we have to be localist in the sense that the closer we are to the problem, the more autonomy a person has in order to resolve that problem. If things are being dictated from the top down, again, we see time and time again that despite their intentions being good, just by being further away from the problem, they're going to cause more issues than they uh, set out to. So what does this have to do with Peter Singer's argument? Peter Singer's argument is saying, look, you know, the lives of two people should be, again, uh, they're one and the same. We shouldn't differentiate. But the reality is most things are not as cut and dry as that, right? Most of the time we're not dealing with deciding to, you know, the the life of one person versus another. We're dealing with problems that we have to solve, money we have to allocate. And the reality is if we're going to treat every dollar uh, as if, you know, if it's used for one cause or another, it's one and the same, Chances are we're not going to be using it effectively. And if worse comes to worse, we might actually be using it negatively, despite where our heart's intention is. So that's the reason that it's important that we focus on where it is that we have the most impact, where it is we have the most knowledge, where is it that if we allocate money towards, we're going to be able to see the direct benefit. Because if we misallocate, we should be the ones who suffer that consequence. Individuals need to have skin in the game. If they're going to use the strong arm of the government to pass their legislation, pass their agenda, chances are they're going to be victimizing people. And when they do that, it's a form of tyranny. Some people think that it's just to use the the federal government to go and pass their initiatives, to go pass their programs. But they don't realize that individuals need to make those choices on themselves. We don't know what's best for another community. We don't know what's best for another uh, uh, family. These people have a better sense of what it is they need. How is it that they need to operate? The further away we are from the problem, the more we have to stick to first principles. These are with basic human rights. But the closer we are to the problem, the more sway we should be able to have as far as how we're going to resolve these issues. And this is what localism is about. And this is how we realize that utilitarianism, while from a high level, if you're dealing strictly with lives of uh, individuals, Uh, it works. But when you go down to the actual details of how to run a government, it utterly fails. God willing, we're going to end there. As always, if you guys got comments or questions, hit us up at at crontalkgmail.com. If you want an awesome translation of the uh, uh, Quran, again, with a word-for-word breakdown for the Arabic, check out the Quran Study app on the iTunes App Store or online at QuranStudyApp.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.